Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hi, my beautiful listeners and book readers, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance, a bookseller at um, Skylight. As a Black and queer bookseller, you often have to compromise parts of yourself to see representation in the work you read and sell. The intersectionality of non-white and queer culture is still unrepresented in literature. So when an author like Brian Washington comes along, whose work not only has a representation I'm looking for, but with his novel Memorial, does it in a way that feels like a modern masterpiece. (laughs) It feels like I've been giving a personal gift, and I'm not sure. I, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I'm so happy today to have Brian on our podcast to read from and have a conversation about his book that has hit me on such a profound level, and introduce our community to him and his amazing work. Before I introduce him, I just want to remind you that Skylight Books offers um, curbside pickup and online ordering on our website skylightbooks.com. Um, also, remember if you're visiting the store to adhere to general. Um, CDC guidelines, wearing masks, uh, keeping socially distanced, and hand sanitizing. And we thank you for that. So Brian Washington, our guest today, is a National Book Award uh, 535 honoree and winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize and the Ernest J. Gaines Award for Literary Excellence. He received the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award for his first book, Lot, which, is, which was also a finalist for the NBCC's John Leonard Prize, the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, and the Aspen Words Literary Prize. He has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The New York Times Magazine, BuzzFeed, Bon Appetit, and GQ, among other publications. He lives in Houston. Welcome, Brian. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me, Lance. It's amazing to you. So you're going to start us off with the reading? Yeah, so I'm going to read a little bit from Memorial. I really don't think that there's very much preamble that needs to go into (laughs) it, but the narrator's name is Ben, and his maybe partner's name is Mike. Perfect. All right, we're ready. Another dream about Mike. This time, we're in a nightclub. The sort of place you'd never actually find us. Only... He is a stranger, and I am a stranger, but we are flirting at the bar. Hey, stranger, says Mike. Hello, stranger, I say. And then we are laughing together. Our shoes kiss each other's soles. And then we are in a bathroom stall, biting its skin, hands in each other's pants, grunting like otters against a dingy dented stall. The next morning, before I had to work, 
Mitsuko says she needs a ride downtown. She mailed herself ingredients from Japan to the FedEx building by the Marriott. So, we pull out of the neighborhood and off 545, dodging the never-ending construction on Elgin. As I hook a ride at a stoplight under the bridge, a disheveled guy in a rocket sweater sips from a paper bag. He's seen better days, but the sweater's brand new. It's got the tags and everything. He nods our way. I nod back. And the light changes, and we both turn back to our lives. Tell me something about my son that I don't know, says Mitsuko. Well, I stay. But the thing is, I've got nothing. Mike is irritable, short-winded. He does this thing with his tongue. For the first few months, he traced shapes across my back and bed. Whenever I got them right, he'd chew on my shoulder. Mike knows a little bit of Spanish, I say. That's nice, says Mitsuko. He has to, for his job. Also, I say, he's really in the food. Thank you for that, says Mitsuko. Really, you're wealth of knowledge. But tell me, she says, when did you know you were gay? I take my eyes off the road, nearly swerving onto the sidewalk. Some loiterers in shades hop away from the curb. They flick me off through the rearview window. Never mind, says Mitsuko. Sorry, I say. It wasn't you. Of course it wasn't me, says Mitsuko. We resettle into traffic. If it helps, she says. I had no idea Mike was that way. He never told me, says Mitsuko, or his father. I had friends whose children are gay, sons who sleep with sons, girls who sleep with boys and girls, but not mine. I didn't see it. And then, says Mitsuko, one day, I just knew. Before he left home, it clicked. Everything finally made sense. There was nothing to say after that. We both understood. Cruising into the parking garage, we find a spot just across from the elevator. Once I've settled the car and parked, we sit in the darkness. What kind of guy did you think your son would end up with? I say. Is that your real question? Says Mitsuko. Are you asking something else? Are you asking if I thought the man would be Japanese? Or if I care that you're black? A white dude emerges from the elevator in front of us, looking extremely distressed. He fumbles with his keys for a second. At the sound of his car alarm, his whole body relaxes. If you put it that way, I say, well, says Mitsuko, I didn't think about that. That wasn't my business. Isn't. I'm his mother. Or are you really asking what I think about you, she says. Another white guy in a suit unlocks the car beside us. He peeks into my window, frowning above his tie. I tell you, says Mitsuko, that you might drive us into the wall. Oh my God, that was, I mean, like, re hearing it was just like reading it all over again. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. No problem. So I'm like, just, I was so grateful for your book when I, um, first like got it because it just helped me kind of escape from I started actually reading it I think during the election 
insanity. Uh, so yeah, that, that, it was okay. it was a great um it was just a great escape for me to from everything. Is there anything like right now that you're reading or watching that's giving you that same kind of comfort of just escape? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I feel like I spent the past three because usually I teach at Rice, but you know, mm-hmm. we're off on our break for, you know, winter. And mm-hmm. I feel like I spent the past three weeks just sort of like in a Ghibli hall, just like rewatching like studio yes. Ghibli films. Uh, just amazing. It's sort of been where I'm at like right now, like watching the flight attendant. That's been like a lot of fun. Um we my boyfriend and I we watched uh, a lot of the Long Wolf and Cup films, mm-hmm. just like rewatching those and uh, so a lot of rewatching yeah. as of late, trying to figure out, you know, what can be comforting mm-hmm. without, you know, too mentally taxing in the midst <laughs> of a moment that is right. you know deeply taxing on all fronts. I mean, I think Studio Ghibli is the perfect escape. Like that's I feel like everyone I know is having that moment of coaching where they're like revisiting his films and like, oh yeah, this is what's helping me <laughs> escape from everything right now. So <laughs> yeah, it's like that familiarity and you're also yeah. seeing like what, I don't know, things you had you missed before, just mm-hmm. returning to like why the things that mattered actually do to you. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, that's, I mean, a great answer. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, there's probably a lot of great answers, but I feel like Studio Ghibli is like, you know, special. special <laughs> answer, you know, <laughs> exactly. Um, reading moral, it felt so emotional and intimate to me. Like I remember, especially at the parts when you describe like between the characters Benson and Mike, their physical violence towards each other. It felt so like I was I kind of dissociated and felt myself in the story wanting to be like in there like stopping it and I felt powerless but I was I realized that emotion was me just really getting into it and being in the story was there any tell me about a time when you were like in the writing process for the book that you felt like overcome like that with an, um, just a huge wave of emotion for the characters in the story mm-hmm. I feel like much of it felt that way you know, I mean, a large part of what actually got me to finish the thing was me trying to and having to ultimately figure out like who each character was, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, from the outset, I had like a sketch of them because the story originally began as like a short story, like 1500 words or so. Mm-hmm. So I had a sense of where their respective emotional pockets were, but as far as like who they actually were, like that's a, a good deal of sitting with them and writing and redrafting and editing and cutting so that by the time I did reach those moments of physical violence or emotional violence or the more volatile conversations that mm-hmm. flow between them whether it's between Ben and Mike or Mitsuko and Ben or Mitsuko and Mike or Eju and Mike it was something I like felt, you know, yeah. I like felt like in the midst of like actually writing it. But at least on my end, it was very much a first draft feeling, you know, like once it was like actually on the page, once it came time to like linger in those moments and edit them, it was just a matter of structuring them in a way that made like emotional and logical sense. But the moments when Mike throws Ben's hot status in his face was a bit tricky to write both emotionally and 
logically the moment when Misko talks to Mike immediately after H's passing. That was a bit tricky emotionally and logically, just sort of get, getting the beats right and sort of getting mm-hmm. the cadences between those characters. No, that's that feels like, I mean, it, I think you did it so well in the story too. You kind of like, if I could feel your um, connection to the story in like a way that like kind of felt above like a typical writer. It felt like you were just like kind of, you were connected to the story in that way. There's a word I'm looking for that I'm <laughs> missing, uh, which of course there is. Um, like you you were, you were, you didn't have the control of like telling the story, but you had to, it was like in you to tell. I could feel that when I was um, reading it, it just felt so amazing to see in the story. Um, one thing that I saw, I read in your story that I read in the novel that I loved was um, just how like, I felt like Ben and Mike were fighting. They were using their family trauma to kind of fight each other too. They were like, I felt like at some points I was like, oh, are they trying to see whose trauma kind of was more valid than the others? Like racial trauma, family trauma, all this stuff. And I was, I that aspect of the story, just like, I feel like I've never seen something like that before in a novel of like characters who had valid, they, honestly, I was reading, I was like, both are valid. Like both points are really like, I understand where they're coming from here, but like, there's nothing positive coming from like them battling it out this way. But like, how was that? How was writing that? Like, um, how was like, how was it writing these two characters having to struggle with each other? Yeah, a lot of it was thinking through conversations and relationships that I've had and those that my friends have had and trying to figure out what were moments when communication felt as if though it were stagnant or if it were in free fall or if both parties perhaps had good intentions for whatever those are worth in mind, but their respective inability to communicate those intentions or to communicate those feelings to one another caused for dissonance or caused for misconnections or disruptions of like their respective frequencies. And a lot of those conversations and, you know, conversations within those respective pilot, like it feels like I haven't read too many of those either in contemporary fiction. And when I do, it's like white gays having it and white gays don't work in most of contemporary fiction. So that's not what they're, you know, that's not what they're arguing about it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's very, I don't know, it it felt like it would be emotionally dishonest not to nod to how there could be those frequencies by way of discussions about race, by way of discussions about each character's like respective class or their respective mm-hmm. family backgrounds or their respective financial backgrounds as they became adults and came into their adulthood. I mean, I don't think that it would have made like a logical sense for two characters that are living for any of the characters that are living in a city like Houston, let's mm-hmm. say, that is so diverse 
or tangentially like a city like Osaka that is so monocultural in a lot of ways, despite us being a port city, despite the diversity from that, not to talk about race or class, you know, sort of alighting those things felt like it would be, I don't know, very circumspect iteration of the narrative. So really trying to have a sense of like who each character was, like what values they held and perhaps where those respective values caused for disruption between the folks around them and whether or not they were able to like articulate those and if they could articulate them, how they would be intuited by the folks around them. Uh, just really trying to figure out what questions each character held dear and which ones they perhaps didn't have the answer to or couldn't answer. And those are the ones that I was most interested in lingering in because uh, it feels more like a better use of like a reader's time to yeah. spend a little bit more in those moments where like a conversation can be had in lieu of like me as the author trying to be prescriptive about people having to be a certain way or think a certain way or relationship being a certain way. Did you at any point kind of sway to one side or the other? Like, did you, I know it's like the author's like the job to kind of be impartial to like your characters, but like, did you ever find it hard to like be impartial to one character over the other where their like their struggle was there like I because I like I at times was like oh I kind of want to side with Ben a little bit more than over Mike but like I I feel like that's also my cultural background wanting me to like side with Ben but yeah did you feel that at any point while writing it I, I feel like I'm volley between the two you know and that's like really funny because like i'll talk to like black folks and like almost like every every other black person that i talk to whether they're queer or not like mm -hmm. they'll preface how they feel about the characters like i know that i, <laughs> I should feel for good but like mike makes a really good points or mike like, makes great like, points <laughs> oh, great. Like, oh. America, and they'll be like you know i really like mike but like he's like fucking asshole like, <laughs> like, so it, i but that i mean that tells me like when i hear that it's really reassuring because what mm -hmm. was important to me was to write a narrative and you know within that narrative a relationship a very singular relationship in which the participants within it were people you know they were autonomous people um both within the context of that particular relationship but also within their respective context and those respective revolutions and it only feels i don't that like the natural thing that mm -hmm. i or like a reader would be more inclined to them one or the other or more one in certain moments than the other and to have that volley back and forth um i mean a part of what helped me negotiate that was trying to get the word count for each of their respective voices as close mm -hmm. to one another as they could. I mean, ultimately Ben has just around 1100 more words than Mike does, but that is only because I couldn't get it down to one to one because mm -hmm. it felt important to me like in trying to illustrate a relationship to give equal credence to each party within that relationship. I felt like the only way that I would 
have been able to create like a portrait of who they were individually and also who they were in tandem with one another and then to present that to the reader so that they the reader could come up with their own conclusions about where these characters were going mm-hmm. and i um before i go on to the next question i just want a one part where i was like i kind of this might be a little bit um just like my own cultural background um my parents are both jamaican immigrants and so close to the end of the book where like i i read was reading ben's mother cooking him like aki and beef and beef patties i was like oh is he jamaican oh i'm like well i'm on his side now i just like my brother, i was like i have to be on his side he's he's family he's this is oh, a, this is family with yeah. me and i was i'm so sorry mike okay. it was like i was writing for mike and he was he just went on this social uh, journey but like my man's eating ackee and selfish and um uh, yeah, that's fair <laughs> no it was just like oh god this is this is this was made for me this book was made for me um so um your book memorial and your book of short stories a lot really shows like the love of your the city of Houston, which I just felt like I've never felt connected to the city of Houston like I did reading your books. <laughs> like I, which is like crazy because I, I know a lot about Houston, but like in, when I think of American cities, Houston never came to mind, but I feel like now it will. Now it's like gonna be something that like, I have to visit Houston now. I have to see the city uh, for my own. But like, did you, half your book takes place in Osaka in Japan. Did you feel kind of a similar love or same love for Osaka that you did writing Houston um, in your books? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think a part of like what, one of the major drivers for me, like sitting down and thinking that this was a book that I might be able to write was I've, you know, spent a pretty extensive amount of time in Houston and Mm -hmm. there's a certain warmth that I think emanates from both the place and its residents over time. And I have only ever experienced that warmth in Osaka. Uh, Houston felt like an interesting thing to me, like an interesting thing to untangle and to unpack because in some ways, just sort of like on site, they're very different cities, you know, Japan, an island nation, Houston, within Texas, within the States, one city is largely a monocultural, Houston is deeply diverse, um, and yet, like, getting the chance to spend time in both places, like, certain connections, like, reveal themselves, right, like, each city's residents love for their respective locales, the strength of like each respective city's food culture, the influx of folks from outside of those respective cities that spend time in those cities, whether for commerce, whether for pleasure, whether for a permanent period of time or a more transitory one. And both cities are deeply funny, which is like a really, strange thing to think about you know just sort of leaving so really trying to figure out like what the link between those two places was for me and how my specific experiences within those cities yielded that 
link. And if that link was strong enough, perhaps for others to latch onto and to see what I saw that was connecting them was one of the questions that felt like it was stable enough for me to spend a good deal of time on. And at least for me, I feel like that was like a major difference between writing a lot and writing memorial and that when I'm working in fiction or rather when I'm working with any project or maybe particularly fiction, like it's usually, usually a question that like I'm circling around that's like preoccupying me or like if ideally it's a handful of questions and sometimes that question's strength is enough to preoccupy me for 1100 words or 1500 words or 3000 words in case of plot, like from story to story. And other times, or at least for a memorial, more specifically questions of like, what makes a place a home or can a person have many different homes simultaneously? Or like, what does it take for a person like to be and feel okay, like individually and also as a unit with a larger community or in tandem with another partner in a relationship or two partners within a relationship, like how can a person keep their emotional autonomy within that? And those are questions for which there really isn't a clear cut answer, you know? And even if, you know, one were to come up with an answer on Monday, it might be different by Thursday, you know? And that feels like the sort of thing that I want to spend time parsing and playing with. So really trying to figure out which questions existed for me, which questions existed for the respective characters and how they go about negotiating those questions without necessarily looking for an answer so much as furthering the conversations surrounding the questions along. Well, even with you, with you saying there that like by from Monday to Thursday you might have a different answer. I, I feel like that's like love for a city too. Like you, to like have that kind of just spectrum of just like ideas and um just what you think of the city changing so much like uh there's so many cities uh I've lived in where I just like I can hate it one day and just like absolutely be entranced by another. it just it's love isn't it just like for that place and I um can feel that in the story like watching um it's interesting you said you we talked about Studio Ghibli earlier but like I felt that you know how like the visuals in his um, storytelling has a lot to do with the location. I kind of felt that in your, like your story, I can see the locations um, so clearly, more clearly than I could see a lot of other uh, locations in other novels. Like, I feel like you spent a lot of time just like making sure that we were in the city, which I was deeply grateful for while reading it. I appreciate it. Yeah. No problem. Um, so, um, A24 is adapting <laughs> Memorial, which is, congratulations, yeah. it's going to be a miniseries, right? Um, yeah, yeah, thank you. It's like, fine you're working, crazy. yeah, you're, you're adapting that too. I can only imagine. <laughs> um, how was that switching the writing formats from like a novel setting to a screenplay? It was, I mean, it probably should preface all of this by saying, like, my film, or really my book agent, and also, like, my film agent, too, like, they mm. could not have navigated that particular process without them, you know, shepherding me through it. Mm. Um, I think that what was and is really important to me is 
retaining the emotional autonomy of the text within its on-screen iteration and retaining the, I don't know, the, how do, how do you describe this without like being like, like the weight <laughs> you know certain moments yeah. within the text like on right. the screen you know because i can get lost right like I've, mm-hmm. we've probably seen any number of uh book to screen adaptations where right. you know we watched it and we were like okay like, they didn't need to do that you know so that was right. it was important for me like not to do that and i think that was partly why like i was uh like in, i feel like i'm really insistent on things it, when it comes to like work but in this particular avenue like it was non-negotiable that i'd be the person mm-hmm. to write it because there was a certain way that i wanted it to be done but having said that like a really cool thing about a24 and you know a thing that is just as cool about working with the rudin team is that i feel like we're all connected in that like our larger goal is to create something that we ourselves would want to watch in lieu of something that we think would be easy to market or in lieu of something that we think would fit neatly into like a streaming apps rom-com tab or you know love at first sight tab you know like when you're showing mm-hmm. so it's been deeply collaborative um and at the same time both a24 and the rooting team have given me like open range like there really hasn't been anything that i've pitched where they've said like absolutely not yet you know which right. is like a real privilege you know a really big gift um at this point um we're pretty far into the writing process and it's been you know a really nice uh thing to get to spend a little bit more time with these characters and see what they're up to and how they're doing mm-hmm. that's that's just makes me more excited to watch it. Um, is there anything without like, I'm guessing you can't really tell me too much, but um, is there anything that while writing, while like adapting that you found new in the story that you weren't expecting to find or like any kind of like thing that you were surprised by in your own story that like kind of bringing it to screen brought out? I it's forcing me to recontextualize the silences that the characters share or don't share between one another. And it's also forcing me to recontextualize the physical proximity that the characters have to one another and how that changes by incremental degrees over the course of their relationships extenuating themselves, you know, like something as you know tiny as then beginning to cook side by side with Mitsuko as opposed to the very beginning of the novel when there's always just a certain amount of distance between them whether it's in the car whether it's in the home whether that's an emotional distance that slowly but you know surely decreases right like really trying to have a keen sense of like how that looks on screen and also what visually can be done to really extenuate and really elicit the emotions that the characters are having or the frustrations that they may be having 
or the more amorous thoughts that they may be having like how can that be done with cinematography like how can that be done with lighting how can that be done with the soundtrack or how can that be done with the visuals that we have in the foreground contrasting with those in the background or vice versa um so it's really forcing me to think a bit more about the world of the novel and how that world is connected or not with the individual worlds of each respective character while also thinking through this question what does a viewer like really need to know in order for the story to move along and to work accordingly with that that's oh my god it's just i feel like it's just gonna uh be so great i'm so excited from hearing that um so um this is something i just i never get to do as a bookseller so i'm kind of excited to try it um as i'm selling your book in the bookstore which i've already started um there's been i've been like telling anyone i can about the book but is there anything that you specifically as the author would like me to tell customers about your book like a personal message from you um to like the people i'm selling directly to i think that if you're spending time with a narrative that is not your own in 2020 or 2021 then you know i'm grateful to you for telling us <laughs> what that narrative is like if you're mm-hmm. picking up like a book by someone <laughs> and you're able to like spend time in like a world like with a series of concerns both emotional logical structural and you're able to find solace in that and like you know it's like thank you and i'm happy for you that you you know have the opportunity to do that i mean for memorial specifically uh it it sounds like a fucking cartoonish now but like from the very outset like while i was writing it it was important to me was to write a narrative that i did not feel worse for having written and perhaps you know tangentially a narrative that one would not feel worse for having read um i think there's a way in which narratives featuring marginalized characters like in contemporary american fiction like if they're in the story then you know they're going to die at some point or they're going to navigate some sort of inevitable trauma and that's going to be the point of their being there or something calamitous is going to happen to them and that will be the point of their being there and i wasn't interested in writing a narrative that trafficked in the traumas of its characters you know because i think that there's a pretty distinct difference between that sort of narrative and a narrative that acknowledges the traumas of the hardships that a character is navigating without that being like the crux of their being mm-hmm. you know like trying to create fully composite people on uh, the page so you know i if someone spent half of a half of a second with memorial like in this climate you know i'm grateful but uh, you know i've gotten to you know talk to folks who read it and something that's been really heartening is hearing uh, people say that it made them feel happier made them feel better for like a little while in the midst of you know everything so that's been a really reassuring thing so i think i'd just be thankful if someone were even considering it you know No, let me add to that list of people who said yeah, just maybe 
I finished it and I was just smiling for like a good 30 minutes because I was just like, just that, uh, what an amazing, like, without spoiling it, just what an amazing ending to like the last, I think, 20, 30 pages. I just kind of took my time with because I was like, I don't want this to, I don't know how it'll end, but I just don't want it to either. And I kind of got a little bit of satisfaction at the end with that. So I personally thank you for that. Um, I have two more questions and I think that'll be it. Um, so my second last question is with um, the food in this book. Like there's so much food. I was like, God, there should be a recipe like add addendum to this where I could just like make everything that they're making. Maybe but, 24 like, will do it. Uh, 824. <laughs> I want that cookbook. Um uh they they could do a great cookbook actually, <laughs> probably. Um that I will buy it. Um but was there any particular meal in the book that you like really want you would love for everyone to try and cook at home? Uh that's a really good question. Um what would be not not including the Jamaican meal, which everyone should cook. Not It's like you should be eating this on a regular. Okay, I can selfish. Like right now, um, uh, I'd say maybe Odin, right? Like, or really any meal throughout, like a hot pot or like a clay pot would be the thing that I would want folks to try, perhaps. Uh, that's especially exacerbated because we're like in a moment in the midst of our pandemic when so many of us are like siloed from like our individual revolutions, whether in tandem with another person or a handful of people or just like ourselves by ourselves. But when it becomes safe to have those sort of communal meals again, like I would encourage folks to try hot pot or Odin or cooking out of a clay pot or a hot pot. Atmosphere. but you can also do it at home by yourself and it'll be so delicious and so comforting because it is that time of year depending on where you are in the world so uh yeah like some, and you know it's it's easy you know like you heat up uh your liquid component um you add your uh your protein components or your veggie components and then the meal's already there and i feel like um now as ever is a nice time for like a low stress thing with a very high payoff low stress high payoff that's i think that's the perfect sweet <laughs> spot right um yeah. so that i will be go i'll be googling how to make this immediately after we're done so right. thank you for that um last question um so i was kind of gauging the skylight um staff to try to see like what a well, like a good ending question being, I think the consensus, you have, you have a lot of fans um, from the Skylight uh, Book staff, so this is a shout out to them. They, they, we all love your books, but uh, you're, Thank you. um, what, the cover of the book, we were trying to all decipher, like, because there's so many meanings to it. It's, if you haven't seen it, it is um, a white plastic bag held up by uh, two chopsticks, right? And it, we were like, some of us were like, is it surrender in the relationship? Is that kind of like what you were trying to like go for? Like a white flag of surrender for them as a couple? Like, 
Is it surrendering like their the battle that we were talking about earlier? Is it surrendering their anger or their trauma? Um, yeah, we were just we really wanted to know. Like <laughs> we were like, what does this mean? There's so many possible meanings here. No, which is great. We're like just like so transfixed by this beautiful imagery. Yeah, I, I think that thank you for thank you know y'all like that <laughs> like even reading the book, let alone like the email cover. It's good though. But I think that yeah, this this gives me the opportunity to talk about Na Kim, who is the artist, like talking about mm-hmm. Na Kim is my favorite thing to do. It's been my joy in the midst of like the Wario Press story because I think that she just did like such a lovely job with the copper. Like I feel mm-hmm. like in any industry, maybe, but like within publishing in particular there are people who are doing like working at like a really high level and like you look at them you say like wow like they're doing a really good job and then there are other people who are just like doing things that are just like i don't know like they like define like the industry just sort of follows them you right. know just sort of implicitly like they do something and then everybody sort of got and I, you know she's i feel like that's what she's doing um and one thing that i so appreciated is that the cover can mean so many different things uh, depending on who is approaching the book and the context in which they're approaching the book. And then that context can change and the viewers or the readers' attachment to the cover, like what they see in the cover can change simultaneously. So it can just be chopsticks in a plastic bag, or it can be a flag alluding to like the process of borders or like the process of nationalities, or it can be a surrender sign flag, right? Like a truce Black, or you know it could allude to the foodiness of the book so to speak right um it has been like the biggest joy to talk and think about like what Nana had in mind and how she was able to like draw all that from you know the text and it was as with lot like it was a cover that made me recontextualize like how I felt um about the book um upon seeing it and like even now so I just feel like really lucky to have gotten to work with her on this and for her to you know give it her her care yeah um I kind of like because this is I'm gonna ask one more question um quickly um if you could step away from being the author of this novel and seeing this cover as like a person who just knows the story would you what would you see the cover as like and this is like to like not as not to say this is the defining meaning of the cover but like you specifically um what would you say the cover means to you that's a really great question i think that there's a scrappiness to it which are quite like you know like if I were to see it and I were to approach it as some sort of flag and depending on who you are and depending on where you are in the world, like a flag can mean any number of things, but it can also be sort of understood that a flag does have a meaning, whether momentous or not. And for the image of that flag and all its totality with all of its sort of momentousness or not to be constructed on something as simple as you know two chopsticks and a plastic bag feels like a really beautiful 
thing, you know, and that like you really don't need much in order to create like a striking image in order to create something that has a lot of implicit and explicit meaning, you know, and to see that like with the word memorial, like I feel like it was important to me that the novel be named memorial because there is that explicitness for the immediacy of the word, the momentousness of the word, but at the same time, implicitly, a memorial can be many different things. Like a memorial can be something that makes you laugh, right? It can be something that is mournful. It can be something that's casual or something that is deeply formal. Like a memorial can be something that is memorializing like a 15 second event or it can be memorializing something that took place over many decades or generations. And that can change from person to person in the same way that you know, the meaning of a flag or the meaning of the image on the cover can change from person to person. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, I think that it would just give me space to think through like what the book could yield and how what the book yields connects to the, the cover. Yeah, no, I love um, the way you said it was just scrappy, like the scrappiness of it. And that's like now, like, I mean, I think that's something that I was like, I loved while reading it, just just seeing how like, they were two like kind of survivors meeting each other. They both survived so much in their lives and separately and together. And I think, yeah, the cover really just like memorializes that kind of, yeah. It, it memorializes, <laughs> look at me, like. Full circle. <laughs> look at that, full circle. Um, so yeah, that's it for me. Um, thank you so much for sharing your work with us, Brian. And, um, Thank you so much for answering my questions and just talking with me. It's just, uh, this has been such a pleasure. Um, so uh, thank you, Lance. Like really, like really. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the time at all. No, like it, it's like, um, just like whenever like an author like you just comes in, like talks to uh, just a bookseller, like who's like out here, like just it's, it's when you write a book like that, that I get to like, it feels like a gift for me to share to, with other people. Like, it doesn't even feel like a job whenever I get a book this good. It feels like a person, like, I feel, I feel with, like, I feel like I have to get, show people this because it's just so good. So it kind of, thank you for helping just me do that. You, uh, it's such a gift. But um, you, so for our listeners, you can order a copy of Memorial at, skylightbooks.com. Um, you can come in the store and grab a copy. We also have Brian's um, previous book of short stories, Lot, for sale, too. Um, and just uh, thank you for listening today. Brian, do you have a last shout-out for um, our fans of the podcast and fans of yourself? Yeah, many thanks to the fans. Uh, uh, many, or no, not thanks to the fans. Many thanks to the staff, uh, specifically at Skylight, for like, taking the time with Memorial, but Thanks uh, for taking the time with literature and like narrative generally. Because um, I, I mean, quiet as it's kept, like booksellers like run the industry, like they are the engine that keeps the industry uh, running uh, one way or another. So, you know, the fact that, you know, there's a podcast that is taking the time to talk to folks that are trying to tell the stories that they're trying to tell, and one that is like thoughtful, and one that gives a good deal of care. 
um, within those conversations. Like it means a good deal. So, so many thanks um, to the booksellers of uh, Skylight specifically, but to all the booksellers generally and to folks that are taking the time to listen. Thanks for hanging out for a little while. Thank you, Brian. And thank you for our, to our lovely um, listeners and book readers for um, just joining us today. And hopefully you guys all have a great day, um, whatever that looks like for you. And thank you. Yeah, take care, stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.